This is Macro Horizons, episode 23, In Powell We Trust, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 17th. And a reminder that even though every summer Friday feels like the longest day of the year, in fact, this Friday, June 21st, has the official honor. So enjoy the few extra hours of sunlight. It's only downhill from here. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market, but more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. Ian, I know you haven't gotten your seat on the FOMC yet, but if you were, how have recent events shaped what you're thinking about? Well, Ben, I I appreciate your optimism, and I'm not holding my breath for the call-up to the big leagues. However, it has been a very interesting week in the Treasury market. We had a series of very strong auctions that occurred at effectively the highs, which represents very good support for Treasuries as an asset class. We had weak inflation data, which, as we consider the Fed's options at the upcoming FOMC meeting, it really begins to look more and more like the Fed will need to do something sooner rather than later. Our base case scenario is not for a June rate cut, although there are plenty of signs that suggest that if the Fed does want to get in front of market expectations, sooner rather than later would be the most desirous outcome. Is sooner June or July That is a question that is open for debate, and frankly, one that we expect will drive the discussion in D.C. on Wednesday. On the positive side of the economic data, we did see a stronger-than-expected retail sales print, or at least in the control group, which is the part that is most relevant for forecasting GDP. We were reminded, however, that even though there were strong upward revisions to the April data, along with a reasonable print for May, Real personal consumption also includes services, and roughly 25% of it is actually good. So the upward revisions to June won't necessarily translate into a stronger consumption profile overall for the second quarter. Returning to the auctions for a second, we were very encouraged by the performance of the auction takedown, despite yields being roughly 40 basis points lower than they were during the May series of the same auctions. This bodes well for our assumption that 10-year yields will be trading with a one-handle sometime before the FOMC. However, if we don't reach that target into the FOMC, we expect to see buying in the wake of the Fed's decision. One way or another, either the Fed is going to make it abundantly clear that there are rate cuts coming, or there'll be a classic policy error trade where the front end sells off and there's a grab for duration that puts downward pressure on 10-year yields. One of the recent characteristics of the Treasury market that has changed somewhat are the consistent overbought conditions that we saw via stochastics. 
these Overbach conditions have been worked off to some extent. Stochastics have reversed, and while not mid-range yet, there is a reasonable amount of room for the market to rally without coming up against technical resistance. We continue to watch the shape of the curve, twos, tens in particular. The curve managed to push up against some of the key levels. 30 basis points in twos, tens still remains a near-term objective. Through that, we have 35 basis points, and then there's an upward sloping channel that comes in closer to 38, give or take. We've long maintained that the process of re-steepening would not be a straight line. The caveat there being, if the Fed makes it clear that an ease is on the way, we would expect a rather dramatic repricing, and that's when we would anticipate the breakout in twos tens that would put 50 basis points on the radar. So Ian, before we get started, and maybe this isn't the right place to ask, but is it okay if I take next Wednesday off? I've got a thing. No problem, John. You won't miss anything in the market. On that topic, Ben, what's on the slate for next week? Well, John, that's fine that you have a thing, but the FOMC is on Wednesday. And the FOMC is a thing, at least for some of us in the rates market. The expectations are currently for no change. We're certainly on board with that notion. Although, as we were debating the implications of the recent fall in break-evens, there's an argument that the Fed might actually want to get in front of market expectations with an ease. And I think it makes sense to acknowledge that this is a live possibility. When we talk about the Powell put, everyone likes to focus on stock markets or financial conditions. And maybe that's right. There's an element of truth there. But at the end of the day, the Fed's mandate is maximum employment in the context of price stability. And they take inflation expectations extremely seriously. If you look at 10-year break-evens in particular, we're reaching levels around 1.617 that have coincided with pretty major policy announcements in the past. Like we're talking the announcement of LSAP 2 or the maturity extension program or back in 2015 delaying liftoff. So the idea that they would completely look through this is difficult. They're going to have to do something to push inflation compensation back up. Do they cut? I don't know, but it's certainly a live possibility. Yeah, it does beg the question, how is the Fed going to be able to outdove the doves again? The major risk, as John has pointed out, is that the solidly anchored inflation expectations lose that mooring and continue to drift lower and lower. And is this the week that the Fed responds to it? Certainly not our base case scenario, but the probability is more than zero. And speaking about doving the doves, I think another way the committee could do that, that we haven't seen for quite a long time, is a dissent. Bullard being kind of the obvious answer there, I think. He's been the most vocal member of the FOMC in saying that stubbornly low inflation, to John's point, by itself could be sufficient to warrant rate cuts. I think the latest CPI data really is troubling. And the fact that break-evens are at really concerningly low levels means that Bullard honestly has a case for a dissent if he, in fact, wants to put in the formal vote to cut rates. And let us not forget the non-farm payrolls report combined with the ongoing trade war, combined with the slowdown in Europe, the fact that the ECB is very unlikely to do anything before we see the Draghi's replacement in the fall. There are a lot of factors out there that would build the case for the Fed to be a bit more proactive. This conversation makes it sound like we're trying to talk ourselves into cuts next week. That might be a little aggressive, but the reality is 
weak realized inflation is backwards looking. The Fed's not setting monetary policy for the economy that was. It's trying to set monetary policy for the economy that is and will be in the near future. And the fact that not only do you see middling ongoing lowflation, but falling forward inflation expectations, that's a pretty powerful one-two punch. And if they don't move in June and inflation expectations don't pick up by July or September, I think the floodgates are open. In contemplating a no-move FOMC meeting combined with perhaps a dissent, a change in the beloved dot plot, it really strikes me that the press conference is where all the nuance can be flushed out for the committee. The scenario in which I think we've been contemplating here is Powell attempts to shift the narrative by saying, if we don't see inflation pick back up and we don't see some type of resolution on the trade war front in the coming month or months, that the Fed will deem it appropriate to act at that point. Now, that would be a clear acknowledgement of the Fed saying, okay, what we thought was transitory at the beginning of the year might not actually be transitory and a reasonable way to prepare the market for a July or September rate cut. And I think, too, it's important to remember, circling back to something that John just highlighted, the committee is not trying to craft monetary policy for June. The committee is trying to craft monetary policy for six months to a year ahead. Given the current macro backdrop, the trade war, Europe, China, everything that's going on, to put it mildly, there's a lot of unknowns in the next six months. So the idea that the Fed wants to get in front of even more tariffs or an even further deterioration between now and the end of the year makes a lot of sense. Because if we reach year end and every imported good from Mexico is being taxed at 25%, the Fed's going to look back and say, man, we really should have cut rates this summer. Don't forget China. So how does this all work out in terms of price impact? Well, You could imagine a world where the official communication that comes out at 2 p.m. is hawkish. Well, maybe not hawkish, but not as super dovish as some of the market's expecting. Look for a little bit of a sell-off in the front end. But then, Ian, to your point, if the nuance or the downside risks are communicated in the press conference, that 2 to 2.30 window, any cheapening could be seen as a pretty solid buying opportunity if the expectation is that Powell's going to tee up further easing later in the year. And a great example of that is the last time we saw the IOER adjustment, the knee jerk was, oh, this is a rate cut. We saw a classic reaction there. But then once Powell took the stage and was able to convince the market that actually, no, this has nothing to do with monetary policy, more simply a function of money market plumbing, you saw the knee jerk reaction in the wake of the statement very quickly reversed as investors digested what the chairman said. As an aside, and this is something that we've been pondering a bit, there has been a great deal of discourse around the idea that the White House has really politicized the Fed, whether it's the tweet-based criticism of Powell or just generally the administration's pushback on some of the Fed's decisions. I think that there is a subset of the market that believes the White House has more control over the Fed than they do. We've made the argument that, if anything, the value of central banking independence for the Fed outweighs any incremental rate hike or cut. However, in the context of the earlier discussion about the lagged impact of monetary policy decisions, what the Fed decides to do this summer is going to impact how the economy looks in the run-up to the election. 
in some ways, a framework I've been tossing around in my head is that sometime around December, January, the role of monetary policy in the United States flipped. And what I mean by that is after the president was elected in November 2016, the risk was you hit the fiscal accelerator with an already tight labor market, you see upside acceleration of inflation, and the Fed's job at that moment is to take away the proverbial punch bowl. And in essence, it basically provided a headwind to the economy. We've now hit a very different state of the world, and that state of the world is one where there's increasing threats of fiscal-driven headwinds via tariffs, via broader business uncertainty. I mean, we've gone beyond tariffing supposed adversaries in China to NAFTA partners, and this is in the period where we're supposed to be ratifying NAFTA 2.0. So in that state of the world, monetary policy's role is not to take away the punch bowl, but maybe provide a little bit more of the punch bowl, or to use a little bit of a darker analogy, foam the proverbial runway in order to try to extend the cycle going forward. So how might this interact with the 2020 election? Well, we could be at a moment where monetary policy is actively trying to support and extend the cycle, in essence, kind of returning to an accommodative stance. Well, that makes sense. We're talking about cuts below neutral in the next few months, a little bit ahead of the 2020 election. And regardless of the nuance that we've spent the last little bit talking about, this all points, to me at least, to a steeper curve. It's not the debate of where rates are going. It's the debate about when rates are getting there. And a cutting cycle or preemptive rate cuts, whether that be in three 25 basis point increments like the 90s or not, is going to offer a steepening impulse to a variety of yield curves. Fair to say? Yes, I think that's exactly how it will play out. The only question in my mind is how far does that steepening actually run before the market starts to contemplate the prospects for the Fed to come back in and buy bonds? The Fed is not going to be actively buying bonds over the next couple of years unless things go terribly, terribly wrong with the real economy. However, the simple prospects of at one point the Fed needing to do another round of QE being supportive for the longer end of the curve and effectively capping how far 10 and 30 year yields can back up, particularly in an environment where the risk is inflation expectations lose their mooring and drift lower. I would say in terms of the playbook, if and when we see another QE program, it'll be after we're back at the effective lower bound, probably put the target range zero to 25 basis points. So yes, I do think another LSAT program is at the bare minimum likely, but I would say that they go all the way to zero first, if only for political perception, right? Quantitative easing is difficult to explain. It's difficult to explain why the Fed is buying such an extent of bonds. It's a much easier explanation to make when it's like, well, we've already cut to zero. We don't want to go negative. Now it's time to go back to asset purchases. That would also be a reasonable time for them to shift to a price level targeting or average inflation regime as well. There was a fair amount of chatter that that could be a 2019 event or a 2020 event. I don't know that we've really gotten a great deal of clarity from monetary policymakers on that front. So we had the conference in Chicago a couple weeks ago. This was heavily discussed. Do you think there's any chance that Powell could try to outdove the doves by shifting the inflation targeting framework? There's a chance. There's also a chance that they could change the pace of the balance sheet runoff. Again, both are very low probabilities. However, if we're contemplating a 
July rate cut, as the market has priced in, and the Fed hasn't ended the runoff of its balance sheet, the market might be faced with somewhat contradictory policy action. So by that, you mean cut rates and simultaneous quantitative tightening? Exactly. Is it all right if I jump in and disagree here? Yes, of course, Ben. You can always disagree. And don't worry. You have the rest of the day to clean out your desk. An area I want to push back a little bit on is the committee tweaking the rundown of the balance sheet for no other reason than simply credibility's sake. They've come out and said, this is our schedule. It's ending in September, and then we're going to go from there. If all of a sudden the market is now questioning every nuance around the details of the SOMA portfolio, then the next time they announce QE maybe, is there going to be skepticism that, well, they said it, but remember back in 2019 when they changed their mind? That's actually a very, very fair point, and you don't have to clean out your desk. I would also add that the Fed made it very clear that the reason they're ending the balance sheet rundown has to do with, at least in part, the dislocations that we saw in the very front end of the market. That was also their explanation for cutting interest on excess reserves, and it becomes more of an issue of getting in front of any reserve scarcity rather than signaling anything for confidence or lack thereof in the overall economy. So we know how we're thinking about the Fed going into Wednesday. Taking all of this together, how would you want to be positioned coming into and going out of 2 p.m. on the 19th? Well, we already talked about what happens if there is a sell-off in the Treasury market between 2 and 2.30. And to your point, the run-up into 2 o'clock I intuitively would want to say that we should be positioned for a less dovish Fed, given how difficult it would be for the Fed to deliver a dovish surprise. So that would imply a backup in rates and perhaps incremental flattening of the twos tens curve as the market essentially prices out a very near term probability that the Fed is going to cut rates. The caveat that I would like to offer, however, is that at every meeting this year, we have gone into the process thinking that there's no way they could be more dovish than the last meeting or than the last event. And in the run-up to this meeting, we do know that the act-as-appropriate language will be integrated somehow into the process next Wednesday. Yeah, I mean, I'd be worried about being too short the front end because that position would just get absolutely smoked if you do see a dovish shock surprise cut. So in general, I guess my bias would almost be to go in neutral to the meeting. I certainly understand the argument for positioning for a more hawkish Fed, but almost going in more neutral or something like that and then following whatever the market reaction might be. Of course, if the Fed comes in kind of baseline scenario, you could see some incremental cheapening before Powell pushes the front end into a rally. I don't know if I'd necessarily be in the go with a move camp in the event that the market backs up. If we see a reasonable sell-off, I would think that would be more of a dip buying opportunity. I completely agree that if the market rallies after the fact, presumably it will be a steepening rally led by the front end that I would pile onto that trade. I guess perhaps I should be more specific. I think the go with makes especially a lot of sense for break-evens. If the Fed does manage to outdove the doves, we're sitting at some really low levels and you could see inflation expectations push up a bit higher. And I would expect that to continue to perform, not just in the 30 minutes after the statement. 
Furthermore, if the Fed comes out as a bit hawkish, I could see some risk of it falling, though maybe I would wait to put on a short break-evens trade until after we see what Powell had come up with. And I also think another dip to potentially be bought is in real yield space, just given any additional dovish surprise like we've seen so far this year, like you highlighted, Ian, is only going to continue to weigh on reels. And so I think still advocating for a buy and any backup there makes sense. In terms of risk assets, it's important to highlight that a hawkish interpretation of the statement is clearly going to be bearish for bonds and bad for stocks. However, in the event we see a large sell-off in the equity market, the flight to quality impulse that's going to follow there is going to naturally keep a lid on how far yields can rise and really just reinforces the idea that a sell-off in rates will ultimately be a dip buy. It's kind of a policy error trade. Exactly. So, Ian, does all this mean that I actually have to work on Wednesday? And I should or should not go clean out my desk? Ugh. Millennials. Careful. Who do you think came up with podcasts? And I still haven't seen this cloud everyone's been talking about. In the week ahead, the big focal point is obviously going to be the FOMC. We've already talked a great deal about that. It's the biggest event risk. It's a pivot point for monetary policy expectations going forward. And we expect it to be an important departure point for the market. Our base case scenario is that the curve steepens out of the Fed. While we can't necessarily conceive of the way in which the Fed delivers beyond the dovish expectations currently in the market, simply confirming the economic headwinds currently in play and incorporating the act as appropriate language might in and of itself be an incrementally steepening impulse. It's less clear how that necessarily plays out for the outright level of yields. Nonetheless, there's very little on the calendar in terms of economic data, housing starts, existing homes. But in the context of what Powell will say at the press conference, we don't think that the economic data will be very meaningful. There's five-year tip supply, hold the back page, as they say. Given the performance of break-evens recently, we'll be watching the auctions for any insight in terms of investor demand. But again, overshadowed by the broader macro considerations. And we continue to like being long real yields and would consider the auction an opportunity to add to that exposure. The meeting does occur with a backdrop of the ongoing trade war and obviously any new tariffs on insert country here will be informative as to how willing Trump is to escalate tensions that are already in place and frankly are responsible for the outright level of treasury yields at this point. Let us not forget the upcoming G20 meeting and the potential for some resolution on the Chinese trade question. Our baseline expectations are that nothing new will really come of the event. If anything, there is downside for risk appetite out of the event. Once all the dust does settle, we do expect at some point this summer to move back to classic trading conditions, low liquidity, price action a bit sticky, any of the big moves lacking the sustainability that we would have otherwise anticipated. Given all the macro considerations, however, we're somewhat cautious that this summer might not follow the traditional patterns. If for no other reason, then there's just so many potential event risks on the horizon. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who's managed to make it this far. 
And in our consideration of the economic outlook, the phrase cold like Minnesota comes to mind. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.